Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I speak with Matt Stevens, the CEO of the Honor Foundation, an organization whose mission is to help special forces as they transition out of the military and into their next chapter. Matt is a Naval Academy graduate and Navy SEAL. He served for 26 years. We talk about his own transition to becoming a CEO, the similarities and differences of both worlds, life and death moments, and how we can all break through our own fear barriers. You don't want to miss this episode. All right, so welcome, Matt Stevens, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Honor Foundation because that's your current world that you're associated with, and I, I'd love to talk a lot about that just in terms of the purpose and the mission of the Honor Foundation and, and your role in that, maybe how that's come, came to be, so we can kind of start there, but then obviously you've had a whole career leading up to that. You know, we can talk a bit about that and you know what that was like, and so I, I love it when I've talked to people that uh, have had a couple of chapters, you know, significant chapters that they're able to then give some perspective on, on what that's been like. I think, you know, the purpose of this podcast and in our program is to just help, I call it like infotainment, but a little bit of education around different career paths and some of those challenges that show up and, and like pivot moments and then how you kind of work through them. So I'm really excited to talk to you. I, we've met a couple of times through our good friend, Josh School. And, uh, you know, I just feel like what you do is so interesting. And I'd love to give um, what you're doing a little bit of a platform. And so people learn more about it. And then also just hear about your interesting path to this point. Uh, Because I know, you know, you served and I want to hear more about that as well. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Is this your your first podcast or have you done others? I've done a couple others. You have. Okay. Yeah. So you're like, this is, you're an old pro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you this isn't going to be your uh, least listened to episode of all time. <laughs> Definitely not. Okay. So tell me a little bit, let's just start with the mission and of, of the Honor Foundation and your role in it. Can we start there? Yeah, I'm currently the CEO of the Honor Foundation, and I have been for going on five years, started in February of 2019. I am not the founder of the Honor Foundation. I actually went through the Honor Foundation's program when I was transitioning off of active duty military service uh, back in, I think I went through in 2016. But the Honor Foundation is is a phenomenal uh, nonprofit. It's nationally recognized. We have campuses and programs uh, all around the country. And the mission is to serve the men and women of the special operations community as they transition out of uniform and into their next chapters in life. And the reason we exist is because the Department of Defense really is focused on getting you into the military and keeping you in and, you know, everything that the Department of Defense does. It doesn't matter if you're Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. But at the end of that time, whether it's four years or 24 years or 34 years, they do do a, a transition assistance program that's mandatory, mandated by law, that really is, in my humble opinion, uh, doesn't meet the mark for 
the quality of people that come out of our community. And so that's why the Honor Foundation was started to fill that gap of offering different services, not just mechanical, like this is how you do your medical stuff. This is how you do life insurance. This is how you write a resume, but really digging into who you are as a person when you take off the uniform and using that as the baseline to really set the set the the why you exist, which then defines the how and the what you're going to do. Right. So it's not about getting a job. It's about being fulfilled. And that's really what we get after at the Honor Foundation is helping people figure out what make what makes them tick as humans, then giving them some tactical tools in the process, then exposing them to the art of the possible of where they might fit in, whether that's starting their own business, going on to some sort of higher education, working for a big corporation, uh, taking a sabbatical, retiring, retiring, whatever it is. Uh, rather than just chasing a job. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this uh, previously, just about our shared interest in transition support for people that have served. You know, there's so many people that serve in our government and in armed forces and in a lot of different capacity in terms of this idea of transition assistance and support. And I come from a background in corporate America in the world of professional services, where it was very common and familiar that you would, um, and I was in HR, so I was in the sort of the intersection point of when people are leaving and how do you support people as they're leaving. And so it was so familiar to me. So when I started having conversations with people in, in these industries or in these services that have had really very little, or to your point, there is a tactical aspect of exiting or transitioning, but there's so much more. And I love that you start with, let's figure out who you are and, and what your why is and what you really are strengthened by. Because I feel like, you know, and this this serves people even in their corporate job right now. Like I do a lot of work with people to talk about what, like when you get up and you're in the shower and that shower test of like, how do I get at the day? Like that is usually a better day when you're doing something that you're strengthened by or you're, or you're leveraging your strengths. So the fact that like, mm-hmm. You're starting there. I just, I love that. And that, you know, eventually the dominoes fall right into place when you have that. And I would think even for, for, you could tell me a little bit more about that transition from special forces where your why is so specific to what you're doing. And, and that may be different post that experience, right? That might shift now that you're not in that environment with that cohort of people with that similar objective. Maybe you could talk to me a little bit about that in terms of just how that fulfillment piece changes. Yeah, you you nailed it, actually. You know, when you're in the military, specifically in the special operations community, I mean, the purpose is very clear, right? Number one, you volunteered to serve, then you volunteered to serve again and try to get through the assessment selection training programs where the success rate's generally about 30% or less, and, and then you made it. And then now you're surrounded with a, a group of like-minded individuals. You have a shared consciousness, a shared purpose, and it's all about the mission and and, and the team, quite frankly. And, and very little is about you as a person. And so it's very easy to get up, whether you serve for four years or 30 years, and you go into work every day, and no matter what you're doing, um, there's a, there's a big purpose at the end of the at the end of the tunnel, and so that is huge. And when you take that away, especially from Type A personalities who've worked their whole lives to get to where they're going, 
and then served alongside and, and, and a lot of times in combat where the bonds are strengthened even more. You take that away and what you have often is a, a lack of purpose, uh, you know, a lack of identity. Who am I if I'm not a Navy SEAL? Who am I if I'm not a, a Green Beret or a Marine Raider or an Army Ranger? Um, and that's a big one to overcome. And so flipping the script a little bit to figure out, okay, what's going to be next? You know, when I was 18 and I joined the service, who was I then, right? What drove me to serve, serve a bigger purpose than myself? And so we, it's counterintuitive, but what we do at the Honor Foundation, we start with the, the introspective piece first. And nobody, nobody in our community really wants to do that because it's hard work. But 99.9% of them at the end of it say, I'm glad we started there because that then sets the foundation. And you may not ever find the same thing, right? It's not going to be the team room in a corporate corporate environment, but you can find pretty damn good cultures, other places where the purpose is no less important, whether it's working for the team to build a business or working at a nonprofit to continue to serve others. Uh, so you just have to do the hard introspective work and figure that out. And uh, it's not easy. Uh, and it doesn't happen overnight either in, in most of the things, most of the people we see. So, you know, it's a process that takes a while, uh, takes hard work, takes a lot of conversations with other people, significant others, because it's also not an individual journey. Uh, if you're married or have family, it's a it's a team sport. Um, but that is the most important thing is, is trying to get a little clarity on finding purpose, defining your identity, and then and then being able to speak about it in terms that are very uncomfortable, right? Let's talk about me. Well, we're all used to the environment of, well, let's talk about the team and how we get there. And, you know, you know, my, my existence is the least important thing here. Um, that's the, that's the mindset in the special ops community and, and flipping that can also be pretty difficult, but, you know, certainly overcomable. How long is the program they go through? Does it vary or you have a structured program that everybody goes through we go we have a structured program it's uh it's designed like an executive mba and it lasts about three months and so the idea for our program is don't wait till the end where you're going to jump off the transition cliff do our program about a year to 18 months before you get out to educate yourself see what options are out there and so over that three month period you come to class twice a week in the evenings because you're still in the military uh, for about three hours uh, a pop. And so all told, plus we we pair everybody with an executive coach and we do a, challenge them to, you know, network and get a bunch of cups of coffee. And so all told, they're probably getting over 100 hours of instruction and one-on-one um, conversations. Uh, and then, you know, then they go back to the military, but we are committed to serving them for life. So as they as they come back up and they're actually ready for a job search, we make connections all the time, introduce them. And if they transition two, three more times after they get out, three, five, 10 years down the line, we're we're committed to, to be there as a resource for them. How did you, you talked about being a CEO. So tell me about your, I want to hear about your journey in the military, but let's start about your transition out and how did you get to this point to be a CEO? And were you someone that thought about running a business? Is that something that's been like on your mind, like when you were in the service or tell me a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah. So I was one of those guys that, uh, 
knew what I didn't want to do, but I didn't really have an idea what I did want to do because it's so wide, right? I knew I didn't want to carry a gun anymore. I knew I didn't want to work for the government uh, and I didn't want to contract for another agency uh, doing basically the same thing. But anything in between was kind of like open open road for me. So narrowing that down from a huge, you know, uh, yeah. wide swath to a, to a laser beam takes a lot of conversations with people. And, and so just going through this discovery process, uh, thinking about my strengths, what I didn't like to do. Like I did, I did a tour in the Pentagon and I hated that like large corporate environment where there's a gazillion layers of bureaucracy. So I was kind of drawn towards consulting or working at a startup, something like that, where it's undefined. You build the airplane as you're flying it. Um, and results matter versus process. And so as I was transitioning out, I had a lot of conversations with uh, different entities. Again, not knowing completely what I wanted to do, but started to narrow that focus down. And uh, I figured I wanted to be in the tech startup world. And then I told my wife and family, and they're like, great, we're staying in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So if you find a great tech job in Silicon Valley, uh, have fun because we're not moving. And uh, it's like, okay, that's that's fair enough. And, and as I transitioned out, I, I put a hard line in the sand. I said, I'm not going to work for, you know, like three months. I'm going to take a nice break. Didn't work all summer. Um, and over that period of time, I realized that if I'm around uh, my house all day long, then that's not going to be good for the for the Stevens family. So, <laughs> you know, again, through this discovery process, um, and through networking, uh, uh, a guy that used to work for me connected me to a tech company that was up in Boston. I was like, you know, I'm not going to move to Boston. And they said, no problem. And I went up and did just an informational interview. Um, and it was a cool, you know, 50 person startup, dogs walking around the offices, drones flying down the hallways. And I was like, this is kind of cool. And it was, yeah. I liked the leadership there. And I was like, I'm going to give this a shot. And I only had to be up there like, one week a month. And, and again, that was perfect for, for my situation. So I actually did that for about 18 months and then transitioned out and was going to start the whole process over again. Meanwhile, I had stayed connected to the military and I was on the board of the Honor Foundation. And I, and I knew the, the founder who'd uh, started it, grown it, was grinding it out for five years. He wanted to move on and, and do something different. He was a younger guy. And, uh, and I just happened to be in that sweet spot of in between. And I was like, well, I think I never in a million years thought that I would be at a nonprofit, but uh, I thought that maybe I could help out because I came from the community, spent 26 years yeah. as a SEAL. And then, you know, just it was the right opportunity at the right time. And again, not anything I ever planned on. It just kind of came across uh, my, my radar screen and it felt right, looked right, smelled right. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a shot. And it's been amazing five years now, almost, and uh, really enjoy it. It is running a business, though, and the business is helping people. Yeah, yeah. D the biz, the time you were in the tech company, what was your role there? I was VP of uh, strategy and business development. Got it. Got it. Okay. And then, in terms of, um, I don't know if this is an easy question or not, but when you think about, because you you'll have sort of a double layer because it's nonprofit but you said it's like running a business. And I, I mean, I think someone jokes like that, that the difference between like a nonprofit and a profit is sort of like a line in your tax return, like effectively, like the, 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 like the business of the job is very similar. 
So I'm curious when you talk about that tenured commitment in as a CEO and, and in the services compared to kind of the transition and now doing this job, what do you think is the biggest difference? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but if you had to, and I'm sure this comes up quite a bit in your like transition program, but like it, or, and maybe there's a couple that are like, that, that are really the biggest difference when people are transitioning and thinking about trying to apply, you know, what they do in, mm-hmm. in the service versus out. Uh, well, the biggest few differences are number one, it's a different language of uh, of business versus being in the in the SEAL community or the special ops community. The second thing is, although there's a budget in the uh, in the military, generally, you know, you get what you get, and if you need more, you ask for a little bit more, and yeah, you're accountable for it, but it's not as strict. Whereas now, I have to go raise the money that I'm going to use to pay for my employees. And in a nonprofit, the product is your service and your revenue is donations or grants. And they're not 100% aligned, right? Because the service is the service. And, you know, people are donating money or giving you money just because they they like what you're doing and they think there is a need. So, you know, being super accountable for every penny that is going out of the Honor Foundation is is a huge difference for us. You know, we're accountable to not only our our employees and the people we serve, but to the donors to make sure that we're we're spending their money in the most economical and, and programmatic way, right? With with as little overhead as we can. And so, like being the one that, hey, if I don't raise the revenue, I will have to fire people, and it's all on me. Versus in the military. You know, sometimes if people didn't perform, you just kind of move them away to another job. But if they enlisted for four years, like unless they did something really bad, they're going to stay in the military. Right. So there's I won't say it's less accountability, but you could move people around a little bit easier. Whereas now, like I don't have that luxury, but I also have the luxury of truly hiring who we want to hire. And so doing a lot of the work on the front end, which you don't always get right is uh is critical to to make sure it's a good fit for the organization yeah no i like that and then um there's probably way more similarities than it, yeah yeah in terms of right so maybe you could talk a little bit about that too just like maybe we're not as far apart as we think when we when we think about that transition so what are some of those that you yeah i think that's that's 100 right i think the similarities of working in an organization, whether in the military or the, or the nonprofit or corporate world, or actually there's way more of them, right? Because number one, it's all about people and relationships and how do you deal with people? It took the most of my time in the military dealing with people. It takes most of my time now dealing with people and how you treat people, right? And, and some non-military folks have a the, the misconception that, hey, everything is life and death in the military and the senior guy barks orders and, you know, and bullets are flying all the time. That's really just not the way it is most of the time. Sometimes it is, and it's very cut and dry when that's the case. But normally it's about dealing with egos, giving everybody a voice, not just going completely on a line and block chart of who's in charge versus, you know, who's not. Because sometimes the most junior person has the best ideas and, you know, sometimes it hurts to circumvent them but it yeah. in the business world you can 
right? You can promote talent faster, I think, but it is still about dealing with people in a respectful manner, making sure everybody's voice is heard and, and they all feel like they're part of a great organization. At the end of the day, we all want to belong to something uh, pretty cool. And it's certainly the case in a nonprofit and it was certainly the case in the military. So yeah, those those similarities are, are everywhere. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. It's interesting. You can find, my husband works at a place where he, he works at Carfax and their culture is unbelievable. And they have now I think they're they're part of a bigger organization they were bought, but it's so interesting when you talk about the mission and the vision. It's like it's very clear, and they have a playbook that's very clear, and everybody mm-hmm. knows. Like it just that is the the root of everything they do, and the way they operate always comes back to that. And I feel like it's such a great example of of when you have something like that and it's in place, then then that piece becomes almost a non-issue in terms of getting like the, the business of doing mm-hmm. it's like you can refer back to it or behaviorally if people there's this playbook and it's like if you're not operating by that you can just say hey we we don't the one of them is like there's no jerks a lot I mean it's very simple right but there are things that like when you clearly articulate that and everybody knows what you're doing like in the military it seems like that's sort of preordained and like we know what that code is and we know what we're supposed to do and i think when you do that well in the corporate space you know you you, it's the same thing with performance right it just impacts how how well you perform the clearer you are in that transparency and then to your point around like being open and leading with curiosity like all those things are they translate it's just you know under a different umbrella Tell me a little bit about your start. So you you met our good friend at the Naval Academy. So is that something that you wanted to do all the, you know, how did you find yourself there? You know, at every juncture in life, I, I most big decisions actually come out of something that I don't, because I don't know what I want to do. Uh, so I grew up, you know, high school and uh, middle school in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Uh, and Quite frankly, it wasn't a big like the military wasn't a big draw. Uh, I don't I don't come from a long line of military you know service members in my family, a couple, but not a lot. And uh, yeah, I was just uh, going along through high school, and near the end of my sophomore year, they made us all go to the gym for an award ceremony. And uh, this kid that I ran cross country with was called up on the stage, and he was going to the Air Force Academy, and. Uh, the Air Force officer gave him a certificate and said, hey, this guy basically is getting a full four-year paid scholarship worth $250,000. And at the end of it, he's going to go fly jets, you know, and have zero debt. And man, what a cool job that is. And that's the first time I was like, huh, that sounds pretty damn cool. Because being from North Carolina, all my friends were going to, you know, NC State, UNC Chapel Hill, which at the time were super easy to get into from for in-state uh, folks. And I was like, you know, that sounds different and not everybody's going to do that. And so I just started looking into it. And this was the mid 80s. So, you know, I actually had to mail off to get a catalog from the Naval Academy in West Point and the Air Force Academy and, you know, look at ROTC programs because I, I thought I, I knew I wanted to go to college. And uh, the more I learned about 
you know, the Naval Academy and then the options just felt uh, like a, a good fit for me. If you're in the Navy, you're going to live by a beach. If you're in the Air Force, you could live in North Dakota. And I didn't want to live in North Dakota and be stuck in a missile silo or something. So the Naval Academy, it was. And I just uh, applied myself and, and did everything I could to get in. And I, I got the, the opportunity to go. And um, yep. I went to the Naval Academy. Yeah. And, and what also happened, so I graduated high school in 1987. In 1986, this really good movie called Top Gun came out. And so the applications my year like skyrocketed to the most ever. And everybody wanted to be a an F-14 pilot like uh like Tom Cruise. And I was like, oh again, you know, everybody wants to be a, a fighter pilot. What else is there? And and uh, you know, remember the Sunday paper and the insert that came in? It was this parade magazine. Yeah, well, yeah. Around the same time, there was an article about Navy SEALs, and it was the first time I'd ever learned about Navy SEALs. And I was like, huh. That sounds pretty cool. And there was one SEAL officer at the academy. He taught math and he was a badass. And I was and I just like figured I wanted to do what, what they did. Again, this is the, the late 80s. So there wasn't a ton of movies or books or anything about Navy SEALs at the time. But I did do research and I figured that would be like a really hard thing to go try to do. And not a lot of people did it and worked for four years to try to get a slot to go. And things worked out for me. So that's that's kind of how I got my start. Did you, were you a good student naturally in high school? Was that something that came pretty easy to you or is that something that you had to work at? I was a good student. I had a great work ethic, but I'm probably uh, half as smart and twice as dumb as everybody else. So that's why I had to work hard just because uh, I'm not naturally gifted in any, in any, in any capacity, physically, mentally. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was pretty good at grinding it out. How, where do you think the work ethic came from? Uh, probably my parents just, you know, seeing them working all the time, although they got divorced when I was pretty young, my dad, uh, you know, a professional that, that worked all the time and, you know, raised in a single family household or single parent household, uh, probably just more by watching his example than anything else, um, was what probably gave me that hidden inspiration. Did you play sports? Yeah, I played, uh. I thought I was going to be a major league baseball player. So that was my main thing. And I ran cross country in the off season just to try to stay in shape. Yeah. So I was all in on baseball. It's interesting just hearing like, as you talked about like the uniqueness of the opportunity and like that competition, maybe to get that spot. So that, that seems to be like a motivator for you, like in terms of like when that kid was up there and it's like, yeah, well, hell, if, if that dude can get that, then maybe I can get that. And then you know, <laughs> the, like, elite program. so it seems like maybe the competitive piece or like that. And then the drive to, to kind of be exceptional. It sounds like is important to you or like something that you exceptional at the thing, whatever the thing is you're doing, you're going to try to be for the top 1% of that group. Well, competition is one of my top strikes. <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Whether it's a strength uh, or a detractor, but 100%. I, I don't know. I always kind of look at marching to the beat of, the, of a different drummer, and that's probably what led me away from the masses. So there's there's so much now, like you said, I mean, about the SEALs that people can, I think, learn about, or there's movies now, there's probably documentaries. I mean, there's just so much that people maybe can consume what do you think in terms of like what I associate and I have not watched them all, but what I associate when I think about special forces, I, I think about like a mental 
toughness that um, sort of supersedes everything else that like everything that I hear, it's like, you know, physically you're, it's your mind that eventually tells you that you're failing more than like your body's failing. And, and you, I'd, I'd mm. love for you to like educate me, give me the quick one-on-one on this, but like, you know, from, from a mental fortitude perspective, if we start there, like w- what is it that you could share that helps you create that mental t- it's not like you just go in with it i'm assuming there's some sort of way to strengthen that or to or is it inherent maybe that's the question i don't know like when you're in something like that where that that's such a critical component to how you perform can you talk a little bit about that i can try uh, i am certainly no expert in this realm but uh first i think that the communities of the special ops you know enterprise draw a certain kind of person to it, you know, so they're generally athletes, uber competitive. They they don't like to take no for an answer, and they like to win. Uh, so you you get that group of people, and then you know, we in the SEAL community at least we we get a lot of high school athletes, wrestlers, water polo, those individual yet team sports where your performance is directly relatable proportional to the amount of time you spend working on it, right? So it's the the will to prepare versus just the will to prepare to succeed, right? There's the step before just getting to the the actual evolution. Um, and then it's, yeah, I think it, it is mostly mental. You have to be in good physical shape for all these things. It just sucks slightly less if you're stronger and faster, quicker than everybody else, but it still sucks. And, but I don't know, you know, I don't know how, how, or if you can build that. I think, I think through sports and competition and adversity, you know, earlier in your life, you know, that's another thing. We have a lot of people in our community who actually had some, some sort of childhood trauma uh, or not great circumstances. And and that just probably builds in a little resiliency where they can take the beating and keep on going. But for me, it was just like, Hey, like there's no plan B. I'm going to go do this. And yeah. if I'm not going to do it, I'm probably going to die trying or drown or something. But like, I'm not like, there's no plan B. I'm not, if I, if I don't make it, I'm not just going to go fly airplanes. Right. It's it, it, for me, it was this, it's this or nothing. And that's the mentality I think you have to have. Like if you have even a sliver of, well, if I don't, if it doesn't work out, then I'll just go do something else. Then eh, maybe you're not committed and you're not the right yeah. person. For it. I don't know. What did it, when you did make it, and you're actually become a seal. Does that uh, experience meet your expectation? Like when you think of what it's going to be like, and then you go through all of that um, training and you uh, selection, something I call it. Like so, when you go through that, like, and then you become part of it. Was it what you think it's going to be? Was it really different? Some of both. It was uh, in a lot of cases exactly what I wanted. In other yeah. cases, it was very different. You know, and it, it comes down to the the small team environment, right? So you make it through training, and then you go to a SEAL team, and then you're a brand new guy, right? And, and there's a famous saying in the SEAL teams, the only easy day was yesterday, right? So you have to earn it every single day, and everything you do is a competition. So every day, you PT, and, uh, you know, you don't want to be the last guy. <laughs> you're not going to be the best at everything normally, like some guys are the best runners, but they might suck in the weight room and other guys are the best swimmers and they 
you know, they're not the best at everything. And then there's the shooting, the jumping, the diving, blowing things up, you know, the tactical skills, the technical skills, yeah. right? You want to be a master at, of your craft. And there's always work to improve um, based on how much capacity you have. Uh, and as a young guy at a SEAL team, I was single. I had nothing else to focus on but being getting as good as I could be at all those things. So it was great. Spent like almost zero time at home, tons of time on the road, deploying, uh, going to different courses, going all over the world. And it was it was great. And uh, but, you know, it's still an organization and there's got to be some bureaucracy built into it. And as an officer, like, guess what? I have to write the evaluations on all the all the guys in my platoon, which is time consuming, you know, and you're dealing with somebody's career when you're writing a we call it a fitness report or an illicit evaluation. So if you just approach that haphazardly, that could negatively impact their careers later. So then you have to be a master at not only the the tactical and technical skills, but all the other things that go into any organization, quite frankly, and and realize that you got to take care of your people and uh, not coddle them, but take care of them career wise. Make sure they're they're getting into the schools they need, getting the professional development training, taking time off if they're burning it down and and they have a family. So looking out for them so that we can keep them in the teams or in the special ops community for a long term, long time versus just, you know, hey, I'm in charge for two years and I'm going to burn everybody out. Right. It's it's not about your tenure. It's about it's about building the team and getting better all the time. And when you are in a special forces, it's not like you rotate around, right? Like once you're in that community as a seal it's not like you're going to go to a different branch right you t- it's it's right. you're usually within that's your scope and that's where you stay for your career is that right yeah you, if you're a seal you're going to be a stay in a, the seal or joint special operations community forever right so you might work with green berets but you're not going to go you know, they drive do. a ship for you know five years and then come back but you yeah. might move seal teams you might move to the headquarters for you know a couple of years, move back, be in the training department, things like that. So one of the things that I am super passionate about is transformation of people, right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of what that's why I get up every day. It's like I just love the ability or the maybe the hint of being able to help someone transform in some way. When I think about like special forces or how it's depicted, or even the military in general, right? It, it seems to promote promote, I don't even know if they don't promote it, but what I see is like, it's this opportunity for people to transform from, you, you know, something that's maybe something ide- somewhat unidentified, right? You're still like kind of figuring out who you are at 18, 19, if you, if that's when you go, right? Like you're sort of younger and you have less experiences. And then you go into the situation that at least as a layman, it's explained to me, like they kind of break you down and build you back up and that whole thing. But to me, what I hear is like this sort of transformative experience where you really start to learn about the ability to rely on other people and that dependency and why you have to have that, but then your own contributions and all those things. And so when you talked before about, I guess I have two questions, like for you personally, when you talked about ego and you talked about like, you have to have enough ego that you can be the person that does the thing that's like required of someone in probably extreme situations and yet you also have to have humility to mm-hmm. move as a unit and a group and so like how hard is it to to that that dance between those two things 
maybe that's my first question and I'll get to the transformation in a second, but like, how hard is it to go back and forth? I don't think it's that hard unless your ego is super big, you know, and, yeah. and like I said, you, you actually touched on it. Why did we join the military? Right. Yeah. Well, when I, when I joined, it was because I, I wanted to do cool stuff. Right. And I wanted to do something nobody else was doing. Um, so that's pretty selfish, actually. But you join and then over time, you're, you're broken down. You're, you're instilled with a bunch of history lessons and examples of great leaders and battles won and fought and, and why we're doing this is ingrained in you. We're, we're here to serve and protect and you know support and defend the Constitution, not any one person. Right. So then it becomes a little bit like, oh, OK, you know, I'm there is something more than just me jumping out of an airplane and that being cool. And then you realize you got like teammates. And uh, and so there is competition. And I would say everybody needs to be confident. Um, occasionally we get those those folks whose egos are so big, it's always about them. And they always need to be the loudest in the room or the best or the most recognized. And quite frankly, they typically don't last that long because they don't fit in and everybody sees them for who they are. Um, so I would say, you know, you keep it professional and friendly in the competitive arena, you know, and, and always has that have that quiet inner confidence, but but never let it get to where it's about you winning and, and you being on the pedestal. So uh, frankly, I never really had that problem because I was never the best at anything except maybe swimming. But it's uh, it can be tricky because yeah, it's uh, it's like how do you keep the caged wolves from uh, destroying yeah. the town? But you need them to destroy the town in certain cases. But then you have to, you know, put yeah. a, a wall collar on them at other times. And it's that is as a leader in the community is one of the biggest challenges because you you attract, like I said earlier, the type A personalities who are amongst the less than 30% that make it through. And, and again, that takes something special. And then 90% of the time you're in peace, but you have to train for war. Then when you go to war, there's nothing better, you know, so you protect them from themselves as well. I'm probably getting off topic here, but. Um, no, it's good. You know, it's, no, it's I could, I mean. Confidence. So let's talk a little bit about the transformation piece of it. So you said you're, you're as good as your last day. So is it like happening over and over? I mean, I just feel like given the extreme situations that you're in like these like transformations are happening all the time would you say there's just sort of one big one in the beginning like maybe even for you personally if there's like you could talk about one one or two for you where you kind of had pivotal moments for yourself throughout this journey yeah i would say um they happen on different levels all the time but you know yeah. and i heard the term once called stress inoculation right and so that's that's why you do training you put people in very tough situations. So they've seen it once before uh, and they learn, they probably fail, but then you, you you learn from the failings. Then you do it again and then you get repetition Then you then you succeed, right? And so you have those common experiences every day. In the SEAL community, we all have this thing called Hell Week, uh, which is like in, in the first phase of training where you don't sleep for a week and you get beaten and you do all sorts of crazy things. Um, and everybody that makes it through can always look back and say, Hey, I, I, I have that to stand on. And the guy next to me did the same thing, whether he's an officer enlisted an admiral or, a, you know, a, the most junior, uh, seaman recruit, right? We all did hell week. So that's creating that common experience that, that everybody's done. Uh, and then in training, you know, again, it's, it's cyclical. So 
normally we work in these uh, two-year cycles where you, you, you go to schools, you take leave, you start working as a unit, then you work as a huge, bigger team, then you deploy for six months, then you come back and reshuffle. And so over that training cycle, you're having those experiences, but it's not always operating at the highest level. You deploy, and that could be, you know, after 9-11, those deployments were often very intense, but then you come back and we make everybody take leave, spend time with their families and just basically, you know, rearm, refit, you know, take time off, uh, blow off steam, whatever it is. And, and, you know, so when you're on deployment, we call it operating in the red, right? You're always like intensity level red, but you can't live there forever. So you have to come back to the yellow. And I'd say maybe when you're on deployment, and you're not on a combat operation, you're still stressed and you're still in the yellow, but then eventually you have to come off that cycle so that you can, your body, your mind can, can kind of build back up, take time off and, and, and rebuild. So that's the green, green area. So operate it on the red when you need to, but you know, as a leader, you can't keep everybody in the red forever because that leads to burnout, poor decision-making, things like that, where you have to be mindful of it. Teresa's new book, Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way, is out and available on Amazon. She writes about many epic fails throughout her career and how she learned from them so you don't have to. This book is full of cheat codes for how you can differentiate yourself when it matters, like in interviews, trying to get a promotion, or being a first-time leader. As always, thank you, Relatable Community. We are so grateful for your support and continued listenership. As of today, we are 10,000 listeners strong. Now back to the show. It's so funny. It's so transferable. Like it seems like, I mean, obviously the it's different stakes and it's different, you know, obviously the environment, I mean, so a lot's different, but in terms of like being able to sustain high performance, I went through this thing when I was at Deloitte called the corporate athlete. And they really started to talk about people that were high performing in the corporate space and likening it to a, to a to a champion athlete and how that those periods of rest and recovery and the periods of stress, like all the things you're doing, like stress is stress, like right to, to the human body, like, like whether it's, you know, what you're describing being in the red, but there's a lot of us in the corporate space that like are dialed way too high for okay. way too long, right? And then it's sort of the, the similar impact you know like maybe not as extreme but i just so as you're talking about it it's like i can just it's so true for for all of us to like understand what those different levers are and how long you're spending in one versus another and then and being aware of like the need to adjust or figure that out which isn't always easy when you're in 100 percent exactly the same yeah. 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 Um, so for you, would you say like, I mean, I have to ask just because of the type of work you're like, have you been in like life and death situations where you thought it was maybe this is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been in several in training where things didn't go exactly the right way. And and I've been in, in combat several times where, you know, you just you just don't know. In training, you know, one particular day I had a, a, a water jump. <laughs> And it was just here off the coast of uh, Virginia, and it was kind of a windy day, and we probably shouldn't have jumped. So the, the way you do it is you push out boats out of the back of an airplane, and then you jump out after it. And we all had static line shoots on, 
which uh, means you can't really steer them. You're just going to go where the wind takes you, which should be somewhere close to the boat. And, and uh, it was so windy that, uh, you know, normally you hit the water and the parachute kind of collapses and then you just unhook it and go. But it was so windy that the parachutes, nobody's parachute collapsed and it was just dragging us across the water on your back. Like you're kind of like you're water skiing, but you're on your back. And it wasn't a calm day, so you're going underwater, over out of the water, underwater, and I couldn't get mine to release. They're supposed to be quick releases, and so I was like, okay, I can't get this one out. So I was going to try to get out of my harness and just kind of have two leg straps on, and I had a knife on my ankle. So then my harness got caught on my knife, and it turned me around, so now I'm getting dragged facing into the waves. <laughs> like, And it was getting dark, I was like, well, I think this is it. <laughs> I think I'm going to drown here today, you know, just like five miles from my house. And that was like the first time I I thought I was going to die. Um, And certainly in combat, you know, I was lucky or unlucky enough to be on the first wave in Afghanistan. I feel it was lucky, but, you know, we had no idea what we were going to encounter there on the ground. And we were grateful to be going, but, you know, we did some pretty uh, interesting things over time that, uh, you know, you, you just, there is no training for it. You just need to be as prepared as you can and make good decisions. But it was uh, certainly puts things into perspective about what's yeah. important in somebody's life, for sure. Yeah. Part of that transition, is it hard to, that adrenaline, right? Like you can't replicate that, I'm guessing. And if you're someone that's been in that space for so long and that's what drives you or that's part of the experience, is that is that a thing that's hard to to move from, or are, have you had so much of it that you're like, you know what, <laughs> I'm good, and now I'm ready to have a different, you know, chapter, so to speak, or or do you miss it? Yeah, I think it's different for everybody. You know, even inside the community, we have guys who on the weekends go skydiving. I used to go do that for fun. You know, in addition to the the training. We have guys who, you know, like the rush so much they do base jumping and other things like that where the margin of error is non-existent, right? Because it is it is that thrill. Um, and then when people get out, if they're not ready to get out of the service, I'd say they sometimes they have a harder time. There's nothing wrong with testing yourself, uh, you know, at least once a week. Uh, I, I fully <laughs> recommend it, and, and I fully yeah. recommend people go – continue to do hard things. Um, but for me personally, I don't take unnecessary risks uh, like that anymore. Um, yeah. Cause I've had my fill, you know, and I, yeah. I just, I think it's different for different people in different stages of life. Right. So I retired when I was 47, 48 from the military, you know, I transitioned yeah. um, and I, I'd done 26 years and my body didn't feel exactly the way it used to. So like for me to yeah. go jump out of an airplane right now, I think my back would split in half um, and my knees would collapse on impact. And I just, I don't need to do that, but I still enjoy yeah. shooting and riding my dirt bike faster than I should, but I'm not hitting, I'm not a 20 year old hitting, you know, big jumps or anything. I kind of stay within my means, but still push myself. So, yeah. yeah. One other question and then I'll, that I just like two more that I have that, um, I'd like to ask people, but I am curious because I think you have a really good perspective on this. There's a lot about, you know, fear and how fear plays a role in 
people and their ability to move forward and like mm. whatever the thing is, right? That fear is a big thing that is talked about and written about and there's huge presentations about and people speak about it. But like, you know, I'm curious given everything you've been exposed to and sort of that mental fortitude, but for people that are struggling, like someone's listening to this and they're struggling with either a decision and the fear is getting in the way of them trying to do something or maybe someone's thinking about joining the military and they're afraid because they think they can't hack it. Or, you know, I just feel like it's one of those things that's such a deterrent for people and you never can realize what you could do or be if you, you know, that breakthrough. So Mm -hmm. just all your years of experience and, and being in that type of space where you're managing people's ability to address it, handle it, consume it, you know, what, like for us lay people, what, what advice do you have that could help us, maybe get at those or break them down or like, you know, what's some proven a recipe? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I don't have all the answers. I would say the first thing you got to do is kind of think about yourself 20 years from now. And are you going to regret not taking, taking the shot? Right. And I think most people would regret not even trying uh, more so than trying and failing. Right. And uh, I believe that. But so so look at the at the end state, look at the long game and, and say, OK, in this life, do I, am I satisfied being, you know, whatever I'm doing now and never have taken the shot or should I take it? So that's that's the first thing I would do. The second thing is, is uh, look at every challenge, you know, as a, a series of small decisions and small actions. Right. So if you got the elephant in the room, take you eat them one bite at a time, right? You don't have to gulp the elephant down in one bite. So if you're if you're up against one of those big decisions and, and fearful of failure, then just think about it in a, a bunch of small steps. Okay, if I want to do this, here's what I gotta do. Here's tangible things that, that I can, you know, tangible steps that I can take. And when you break it down into smaller decisions or smaller things then it's not as daunting and you make progress. At least you're going in the right direction. And then the final thing I'd say is give yourself some grace, right? And you don't have to achieve success like overnight. Nobody does. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of failure to learn from. And so if you just strive to get like 1% better every day versus trying to be 100% better in one day, then you're, you're again, you're going to make progress and so even if you never achieve that like high, uh, you know, the, the the stretch vision, you're going to be way better by at least taking those small steps and getting a little bit better every day. So then probably by the, you know, that 20 years down the road, you'll have achieved pretty much what you wanted to anyways. But you got to sometimes you just got to say, fuck it and, and take that first step and apologize for my language. But we can edit that out if yeah. you want to. Yeah. <laughs> And I think what you said before, which just struck me as you're talking about that, the idea of like failing at certain things, like even within the training that you talked about, like you get another try to to do it again and learn how to do it and then do it again. And I think that's a huge thing we're missing now, like where it's like, yeah, you can fail multiple times till you learn a thing and that's okay. And I just feel like there's this expectation because of our access to information or what, but like now mm-hmm. it's like, you should just be able to do it and do it at a hundred percent. Um, thank you for that. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about soft skills because that's my wheelhouse. And I love to talk about the idea of, um, 
hard skills versus soft skills and the soft skills being what like really are your interpersonal skills. And you've mentioned it before a little bit, just in terms of relationships. I am curious as someone in the special forces, because you're my first, I think you're my first. Yeah. I think you're my first interview. I've had like a lot of military, but I don't think I've had a special forces, but in terms of your career, what are, or a CEO, right? Either way, it probably translates like what are one or two soft skills that you think are really critical to success? Yeah, they are translatable. It doesn't matter what you're doing, but first and foremost, I would say to listen to people and, and truly listen versus, you know, automatically defaulting to offering a solution. You know, I learned that probably more from my wife than anything, but, you know, listening to people, truly listening and understanding where they're at and meeting them there is, is the first step. Second, I would say treating everybody with respect, right? And uh, it doesn't matter if you're the janitor or the admin assistant, the lowest person on the totem pole or the CEO or the commander or your boss, right? Everyone who's part of any organization deserves to be treated with respect because they want to be part of that team. And they, they've chosen to be there. I, I actually learned, you know, in the early stages of, Afghanistan, when we first deployed on the invasion, like, hey, Navy SEALs, we all thought we were the the end-all, be-all, right? And so, hey, Intel rep, give me the target that I have to go plan and assault. Um, and so, oh, okay. And then I needed to communicate. So the intelligence functions and people quickly became more indispensable than any SEALs because there, there were, you know, not more of us, but... Our job at the end of the day was very, you know, precise. We're going to kick down a door, take down a target, you know, capture somebody, whatever it is. But getting to that point, it's a whole team uh, of people. And so I think we had a misstep early on where we all thought that the most important thing was the end operation, whereas really it became a cyclical thing of like, okay, we go hit a target that the intelligence people developed and then at the end of the target, if we don't get what we want, we give them any people or intelligence we got off the target and they have to figure it out. And so it's, you know, they're actually more important than us to this whole system of uh, finding the enemy and taking down, you know, enemy networks. Uh, so as an operator, if you didn't morph over time and become part of the solution and become almost an intelligence collector, then uh, you were wrong. And then... So that, those are two things. And then um, the third thing I say is I always thought it was good when I was a younger person to be told why I was doing something, especially in the military where you do a lot of stupid things. So it feels like you're doing stupid things. Um, so I always gave people the courtesy of, of telling them why I made a decision so that they at least understood the decision-making process. They could disagree, agree, give feedback. But again, their voice is being heard and uh, – and they were uh, just as important to the decision as anybody else, even if it went a different way. And the thing that I harp on with uh, our people transitioning out is then following up a thank you, a call, an email. You know, I think we've gotten away in this society. We can email somebody. Hey, thanks a lot. Text somebody. That's fine, too. But if you actually like call somebody or write a thank you note and make them feel like their time was well invested, that goes a long, long way in this whole thing. So I love all of that. It's really good. And I think your comment about the 
interdependency of other functions, like depending what your jobs are and recognizing the value that they bring and that that idea of a cohesive unit. Like it's so powerful when you, and the way you described it and the specificity, I think is so important. And we, we can really forget that and get singular in the way that we operate based on what our role is and what we're being asked to do. And so it takes that, I think, bigger view, like you have to step back and, and look at that bigger picture view and see, we did, um, when I worked at Deloitte, I did a lot of risk management stuff and a lot of crisis management. And um, we would do these simulation events, right? Where stuff's going south and and one of us ran some. And I worked a lot with like our office of security and our attorneys and office of communications and our tech people, right? And we'd all get in a room and do these simulations. And the like knee jerk responses to do your part, right? It's like to do, well, this is my thing and I'm supposed to be, you know, people safety. That's my thing. Like I'm, I was a people person, right? And then the tech people, I was like, I needed stuff from the tech people, but I just wanted it. And I just didn't realize like when you get in those simulations and you realize what they're up against mm-hmm. to be able to give you the information that you need to then, you know, and it's all connected. And then how, you know, the CEO who's community, who's the face of the organization, you know, it just, it gives you such perspective when you have that type of, and not, not all of us get that opportunity to work or have a simulation where you get to see where all the parts fit together or how they fit together. So I think your counsel there is really good. Okay. And then lastly, like if you were to put your arm around young Matthew, <laughs> Maybe I translate it to your kids because you have kids, so it, that can work too. But like, you know, just counsel in terms of some of the lessons you've learned along the way that would make your path a little easier. What would you, what would you tell him? Uh, there's, there's probably two big things, and number one would be to, you know, find really solid mentors early and often, and uh, you know, cultivate those relationships. I did okay at that, but I could have done a lot better. Even now, like. It was finding people that you respect and actually asking if they would, you know, have a conversation and, and then bouncing ideas off of them. I think that would have served me a lot better and, and made my life a little bit easier uh, to navigate certain, certain, well, frankly, all of it. <laughs> so, you know, mentors, not like a formal mentor program, which I think never worked, but yeah. really just the informal, like, I love what she does. I wonder if she'll you know, take the time to speak with me. 99% of the time, they're going to say yes, right? Because uh, people generally want to help others. And then the second thing, which is a little bit broader, would be to ask for help probably more than I did instead of just like struggling through, beating my head against a wall or, or figuring something out. And it ties into the mentorship, but I think it's slightly different in that, uh, you know, again, we don't want to be seen as weak or failures, no matter what your job is especially if you're in charge at any level, but frankly, asking everybody around you, you know, the people that work next to you, the people who work for you and the people that work, you know, that you work for, ask for help and advice. And I think, again, people are more than willing to help. And if they're not, then you'll learn a little bit from them and like how not to do things. But, uh, you know, I think too often I tried to go, go it alone or took the hard path instead of, uh, which is fine some in some cases, but, in many cases, there was there was a, a great support network that I could have just asked for help uh, earlier in the process to make it less painful for everybody. What do you think got in the way? Do you think it's like, a, is it a vulnerability thing? Do you think it's a, I'm supposed to know, so I just need to figure it out? Like, what, what do you think 
is because I think it's really insightful. And I, I think there's a lot of people that could identify with that. Like there's, I agree with you. I'm I'm like, I'm even myself. So as you're talking, it's like, I, I think there are tons of people that would be willing to pick up the phone. And so what do you think gets in the way? Yeah, I think, um, you know, generally in younger people and younger professionals, it is the sense like you don't want to show vulnerability because that could show weakness and then detract from your whatever, you know, respect you're supposed to be given or are people going to think less of you? Am I going to get the next promotion or whatever? So whereas the reality I've learned over time as I've become a little wiser and older is frankly, showing vulnerability actually garners you a lot more trust from everybody around you and then makes you a stronger person uh, and perceived as being stronger because you're you're authentic. You're, you're showing that you don't know everything. You don't have all the answers and you're not the know-it-all and that people can trust you and that therefore you're probably, they're probably going to come to you for the same thing. And so I, I think it's the natural evolution of somebody's uh, professional development or leadership, but you know, early on, showing that vulnerability is probably the best thing to do. And I, I think it gets, you know, all the things you just mentioned. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny when I, my, I know I mentioned before, but one of the, when I first started, maybe we were, I don't know how far in we're, our relationship we were, but I remember my husband saying something, he was talking to somebody at work and he said, explain it to me like I'm four years old. And I was yeah. like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe, like, that's so embarrassing, you know? And then I was like, I use it all the time now. <laughs> like, if I don't understand something, I just frame it in that way. And then I've shown my cards that like, I really, maybe I should have a baseline understanding of something and I don't, yeah. but I'll just say like, and then that just, I don't know, it alleviates that piece of it. And then you get the information that you need. So sometimes it's the language that you need to even be able to ask for it without feeling like you're, you know, putting yourself out there. But yeah. Absolutely. I, I think you touched on it earlier too, when, when you talked about, I think you said something to the effect of uh, have a thirst for learning, right? So if you don't know, but then you're okay with not knowing, that's a big red flag. But if you truly are interested and then you go on and now I'm going to find out everything I need to know about that one thing, that's that, you know, thirst for learning, uh, the learning leadership, right? That's That also is critical to it. So Thank you so much. I've taken up a lot of your time. I really, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I feel like I can talk to you forever. So I just, I really <laughs> appreciate it. I feel like you had such great wisdom and I really love, you know, we've talked a lot about, they've got to figure out a way to partner or to be able to support what you're doing. Cause I just think it's really cool. So I really appreciate the time and wish you the best of success with your program for sure. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I think the work that you're doing is so critical and important, so appreciative of all of our special armed forces. Some of the highlights for me in terms of our conversation, your comments around start with introspective work on your personal why and understanding your strengths, treat everyone with respect, and don't be afraid to ask for help. 
Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and to Hannah for your support. A big thank you to our relatable community. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe and rate us on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills. You can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.